Guy Adami here, joined as always by my dear friends, and yes, they are dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. We have a great episode of On the Tape for you. So much to talk about this week. Markets at all-time highs, of course. Big tech earnings. Robinhood's market debut. Bitcoin. And, of course, the Fed meeting. Love the Fed. And later we'll be joined by Mark Dow, author of the Behavioral Macro Blog. Stick around. It's going to be a good one. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. We should start by talking about the 500-pounder. How many pound gorilla is it? I hear all different things, 600, 800, whatever the amount, the weight the gorilla weighs. That's what we should talk about because why is the market higher, Dan Nathan? I ask you this, you ask me, why is the market higher? Because it's open. Because it's open. And here we are as we make this podcast, S&P 500, new all-time high, the whole rig, nothing matters. No bad news, no anything matters. The market just grinds higher. Why? A number of reasons high on my list, Danny Moses, is this passive investing that's going to end tragically. Well, I can't believe the 500-pound gorilla is not Robin Hood. I well, thought that's, that would- that's later in the show. Okay. But yeah. please, no, continue. Listen, passive investing, you got to chase. You know, Benchmarks need to be hit. Money's still flowing in the market. We've said that all along. Until you see that end, nothing will end. And so there was a lot of earnings this week, though. So there were some outsized moves both up and down. But everything I think was priced into the market that earnings were going to be. Pretty interesting. When earnings season started a couple weeks ago, we saw banks had run into theirs, right? They got Q2 earnings started and generally really good results. Stocks did not trade particularly well after that. And I think since then, we've seen a bit of a rotation out of some more cyclicals. There's been obviously a lot of new highs in some names that have been performing very well. But the rotation over the last couple of weeks into these super cap names, we call them the F-MAGA complex. Who's we? Well, I do. The Facebook, the Microsoft, the Apple, and the Google and the Amazon, Apple and Amazon, we know, had rallied, what, more than 20% from their May lows, and we'd seen rotation out of some cyclicals. Guy, you and I were talking about earlier today, the transports. Guy a guy actually reminded me that he was around. He wrote the white paper I on the Dow theory. The work on yeah. that, on, on you know, the, trend, the Dow theory stuff. I mean, that was like early, you know, what is it, 20s, early 30s. Yeah, now. it was. And you know what's interesting about that is that that's out the window. Your white paper, gone. The world has changed, though, Dan. I would submit the transport are not nearly as important today as they were 30, 40 or so years ago when it was relevant. The world's changed. Our economy has changed. A much more technology-based economy with something that you're adept at. I'm more a railroad guy. By the way, growing up, not that anybody cares, I used to love model railways. As a matter of fact, if I ever make enough coin and if I have a room in my house, I'm going to build an entire model railroad in my basement. You want to hear something really cool? On 12th and 8th Avenue in the West Village in New York, there's a Manley's Liquor Store, which I've been going to for more than 20 years. Been there a long time. And up above, that literally tracks the entire ceiling 
of the liquor store is a model train. You can't that's take pretty, your eyes pretty, off it. That's is pretty that, cool. I mean, right or, yeah. right or wrong, Dan? I don't it know, is. Danny. There I mean, is something you know. nostalgic about those trains. I had a train set. Look at you. All right, let's get back to this market highs, earnings. Danny, what's your take here? Because last week when we were talking about, I think we literally said, what the hell do these guys have to do after the runs that they've had, given the market cap and the concentration and the percentage weight in the S&P 500, those top five or what, nearly 25%, nearly 45% the NASDAQ 100. What do they got to do to keep this market going? I think it was expected. Guy talked about McDonald's. The stock actually traded up into earnings and then traded off. You've seen a lot of kind of selling the news. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Russell actually closed the gap a little bit on some of the big tech names, correct? Because the money stayed in the market and it rotated a little bit. Some of that may have to do with the Fed, you know, a little bit that's happening here. But Dan, you got to tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, no. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about with the rotation because we saw cyclicals, transports, some banks, you know, they all came off 10 or so percent. And that is a correction. And so when we have strategists on fast money and we ask the question, those are who are on the lower end bound of the S&P 500 target ranges. They're like, listen, I've gotten corrections in a lot of sectors. I've been underweight. Yeah, we did say something last week that I think was correct. Low rates now means lower stocks. I think because you don't want to see a slowdown now because that's not supportive of high PE growth companies. So if you watch now, now the 10-year yield is tracking the opposite. Now the yield is kind of moving with stocks up before the yield was moving down. So I think we now see a little bit of a, a little bit of a correlation out of the bond market make yields very climb. little in, bit, in Danny. Very little but, bit. But I mean, right now the, the 10-year enough US to Treasury yield is at 1.27. So there was a down move at some point this week, although it seems like every day is up. But there was a down move and yields actually traded down five or six basis points that day. And I was watching it. So that was ahead of the Fed. That was prior to the Fed. So I just think, again, there's just liquidity in the market right now. It's just running. And, you know, the Fed also announced a permanent facility, right, which Guy's been talking about for some time, which I think signals a little bit of problem. But at the same time, at least it signals a little bit of air cover. No, it's it's madness, though. So this week, when we come out of this week, we're going to have basically two-thirds of S&P earnings are going to be in the rearview mirror. And was there anything that stuck out to you guys? There was a couple things on Thursday that stuck out to me. I think PayPal, $325 billion market cap company, greater than that of Bank of America. That stock down 5.5% the day after its earnings. They actually missed, and they guided down. That's something that I literally haven't seen out of a mega cap, fintech, or tech company. So that sticks out to me. That's something I think you want to start tracking because we know that those comparisons for a lot of these companies from Q2 2020 were really easy. That I think that we saw from facts that they had a note out that earnings EPS year over year was going to be up nearly like 80% or something. It gets yeah. a lot harder from here. Is my well, point. PayPal, for example, you're right. They did miss and their guidance was miserable. And when you're trading at 62 times next year's numbers, you're going to pay for that. No, by the way, for you armchair technicians out there, a little bit of a double top, not a little bit, a lot of it. What stuck out to me this prior week was, uh, we talk about Facebook, we're still waiting on Amazon as we record this, but what I'll tell you is the Google earnings continue to be ridiculous. I mean, I know all you young folks out there call them the alphabet. They're the Google to me, but you want to say this stock should be north of 3000 I agree with you. I mean, they're going to earn close to $120 a share probably next year. You want to put a 28 multiple on it. You can do the math, Danny and Dan. That's a $3,000 stock, deservedly so. I agree. I would say back to the PayPal, Dan. You know, I think crypto people jump in. It's like dot-com back in 1999. You want to own PayPal's in crypto. They have a deal with Paxos. You can use crypto on the site, et cetera, through another medium. I think you had that in the stock also. I think people just bought it blindly. Oh, it's in the crypto basket. Let me buy it. And then they report none of their earnings at this point really come from crypto per se. So 
I'm not saying that's what it was, but there was fluff obviously in there. Yeah, the other thing that stuck out to me, Apple, it's multiple actually went down this week. So, you know, on fiscal year 2022, next year, they're supposed to have 3% revenue growth and low single digits earnings growth. And so the stock obviously hasn't broken out, doesn't made a new high in a few days here, but it's trading about 26 times. So I guess the question is, as comparisons become more difficult, what do you pay for that? You know, Guy, you just threw a multiple on Google where they're expected to continue their ad business growth. It's just off the charts here. So I think there's some things that stick out to me where where the second half of this year gets more difficult, especially as you start thinking about valuing things on more normalized earnings. I think the most important company in the world, in my opinion, is Microsoft. I think the cheapest company still in terms of valuation where there's still growth, I mean, not the cheapest, but just as deserving of a higher multiple is Google. Now, you mentioned Apple. Let's just talk about that for a second. When Apple was a growth company, when it was a growth company, it was trading at a value company valuation. Now that it's become a value company, it's trading at a growth company valuation. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think the one tidbit that the market took as encouraging was the fact that services revenue are now 21% of overall revenue. That trajectory is a good thing. Bad news is you don't really have any earnings growth. You talk about it all the time. And the last two quarters, Apple traded up into earnings and then had earnings release and the stock traded lower only a month later, making all-time highs. I think that 135 level-ish, if you're playing stock market, that was the level of resistance last earnings report. That will be support this time. If it gets down there, I think you buy it. Dan, you want to talk about Ford for a second? Because I love my Ford Mustang Mach-E. Well, before you guys talk about Ford, are you familiar with the CEO, the chief executive officer of Ford? His last name is not Ford, which is probably the best news for a while. Are you familiar with the gentleman? Either one of you can chime Farley. in. Farley. Yes, Farley. Funny you should mention that. His first name is Jim. Do you happen to know where he went to college? Anybody? Georgetown University. Now you guys can wax poetic, but you might notice that the growth and the trajectory in that stock has been associated with the rise of Mr. Jim Farley. Not coincidental. This is a week that we saw Tesla earnings. I mean, people kind of got excited about that number. I mean, the only thing that I could see from all the other auto earnings was that the EVs are coming hot and heavy from almost everyone else. And that was a major pillar of the bear story for years. And it really wasn't until 18 months ago that this stock started working. So it's not like, you know, this is something that happened overnight. We knew the competition was coming. I think Ford also mentioned that they had 120,000 orders for the electric F-150 that's coming out next year. That is the best-selling truck in America. The one thing that stuck out to me more than the results was the fact that they said that they see the supply issues with chips abating. And, nice, and good than, word by you, yeah, abating. abating. You always call me out when I use that word. No, no, because it's a, it's a wonderful word. And listen- But here, Guy, in this example, it's a good, abating, it's a good use abating no, equals I mean, transient to me, or uh, it seems like part of that sort of thing, because we saw some of these chip guys whose results weren't good. Do you notice this? All right, here's a great one, Danny. Intel- they said they don't see the shortages in the Hold issues. on a second. Are Abating allowed, until 2023. Are we, allowed, are we allowed to intelligently speak about Intel or is that- Well, not, are you going to be a Monday morning quarterback? Not here? in our purview. No, you know, it's interesting about Ford, getting back to Ford quickly, because this is right in your wheelhouse. Like, I'm just going to put this ball up Go on ahead, the throw it. for you, because I know you look at these things. Ford has now become, in my opinion, a free cash flow story, which is, it's. I don't think it's been since Henry Ford was around. That, to me- is deserved of a valuation at least 
half of the market multiple, which, listen, Ford trades at a single-digit multiple. The market multiple right now is 22. Give a 10 multiple to Ford, you have an $18.5 stock. That's the math, Danny Moses. Wow, that's strong. I'm going to say this. I mentioned Ford. I wasn't even going to bring up Tesla, but, of course, you had yeah, to. We'll get in there. If you want to believe the earnings and how they're printed, fine. But if you want to go through the queue like no one else does and read through how they really got there, that's a whole other issue. But I want to mention the used car market because – there is an aspect, I agree with Dan, of car prices, which are transient. I mean, they will come down. Will they come down to where they were? Probably not, but obviously they're going to come down. This used car market right now, people that are out there, forget if you trade stocks. Like, pay attention. I will tell you this. Renting a car from your local rental car, forget about traveling. Prices are coming down dramatically right now. Ford is saying they're seeing this thing potentially abate. They're saying this thing's going to be stopping in, in the future. Used car companies, CarMax, look at these charts, AutoNation, Carvana, Shift, Credit Acceptance Court. Now, some only deal in used cars, right, and some do financing. I got to tell you, these things are trading at multiples. They look cheap on 2021 earnings. Do people really believe that in 22 and 23 in the out years where these things, they might be trading at 50, 60, 70 times earnings. And let me tell you this, I'm not going to go out with a short call on these right now, because, but they're financing cars, right? You're, it's easy to get financing because- Money's free, so they're getting financing. They're financing cars at these prices as well. So, you know, they all throw your keys. You can have it back. There are companies that are experienced. First of all, the best credit metrics you'll ever see. Like, at the, this is the top of the top at Ally, Santander, Consumer, that do these financings. But just take a look at these companies. So this is not, I mean, there are shorts in this group. So I'm not saying go long Ford and go short the used cars. But these things will converge over time for sure. So I'm the one to always go off the rails here. And my sense is Dan will talk to Amanda later and cut this out. But when Danny just said money's free, I think of money's tight, nothing's free. Won't somebody come and rescue me? And that's a line from anybody want to play our home game here? That's a great Stevie Ray Vaughan for you folks playing our home game who passed away far too early in a tragic accident. I believe it was a helicopter accident. We did that episode. I thought you were going to do money for nothing. I Well, no. See, that yeah. album, although and I love it. Listen, free. Dire Straits is the last band, the last new band that I like. Danny's that Dan is now. No, no, but saying, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that was the Journeyman tour, Eric Clapton. I yes, saw Eric and Robert Clapton on Cray. that. T- we don't have yeah. to relive his death. We did yeah. this on episode. I, I, that, oh, but I'm Danny bringing Robert. it up again. Right. I don't right. know. Speaking, you, speaking of something that was born into a grave here, let's talk about this Robin Hood IPO that came in. God. Had to wait. 15 minutes. So it came, came at 38, yeah. right? At the low end of the range. All right, Danny, just take over because you, no, like you seem hot. I Let's just, do it. I just, you know, I, I sent an email. If you're a Robinhood customer, God bless you. That's probably not the worst place to trade at the end of the day, but good luck. And I got a call last night from a friend of mine. He says, I think I'm getting everything that I want in this Robin. I go, of course you're getting everything you want in this Robinhood IPO. He goes, I'm not sure yet, but that's what I'm hearing. I go, what'd you put in for? He says, $50,000 worth. I said, great. I go, what was your price limit? He said, 50 bucks. I'm like, 50 bucks. I go, it's not even coming near 40. Priced it at 38. He called me this morning. goes, I, he said, what do I do? I said, happy Thanksgiving. To which I tweeted the other day before because Vinnie Porter and I used to, when we got these IPO allocations, some we just wanted to participate in the company, maybe want to be long-term, but you can tell when a, when a deal's not going to do well. Whenever retail is 35% of any transaction, forget that it's a Robinhood account. It doesn't go well. But Here's a major IPO of a company. Goldman and JP Morgan, I think, led the deal, if I'm not mistaken, right? Had 65% institutions. 
Dan, where's the stock trading right now? 36.15. It traded as high as 40. I think what's interesting about the underwriters, they let it break immediately and they want to just kind of like flush out all the weak hands. I mean, that's probably not the, the dumbest thing. They have their green shoe there. They just let it go. Well, let's explain to the listeners what that is exactly because, yes, of course they let it break so because they can wash out all the weak hands, which are all the Robinhood clients more than likely, who now, by the way, will not be able to trade on the IPO for a month for a, no for 60 days. Oh, is it really? Oh yeah. I'm sure they're going to hold to that because any IPO that makes it into the Robinhood network must be a great one because yeah. the institutions don't want it. Yeah. I don't think IPOs are doing well right now. And I'm not going to name a bunch of names because I don't want to pick on a bunch of stocks, but things that just despack or other IPOs, there just doesn't seem to be much of a bid for them right now. And so it's funny. And we're going to talk crypto in a couple minutes here. It just seems again, if you think about SPACs, if you think about IPOs, if you think about crypto, I know that we just had a short squeeze and this market is going to be squeezy with rates where they are and this kind of FOMO activity all over the place. But there's a lot of buckets of speculation that still trade very poorly. And I'm reading headlines here as we speak. Robinhood flirts with worst debut ever. Ever is a long time. By the way, you know what the worst debut ever was? No, please. MF Global. Hmm. Come on, stop. Yeah, worst ever down seven or eight percent, I think was the was the number. So Uber was the last bad one of this size. Now you've had IPOs that are but this size company, right? Bringing $2 billion worth of stock to the market. So back in April, Coinbase went public through a direct listing. At the time, Bitcoin was making new all-time highs right up into it. The sentiment seemed unusually positive at the time. Bitcoin and Coinbase subsequently sold off like 55% from those highs to their recent lows here. Do you think we're going to see any similar action in the market? And then as far as the hood is concerned huh? here, what? We're, it's, it, that's the ticker. Oh, sorry. Co- well, oh, don't, guy, hood, don't you yeah. say it comes out H-O-O-D? In the old days when I was on a block trade, you know, Danny, I, I know we talked about this. We actually worked together. I mean, you might have been yelling at me at one point. I didn't even know. You guys didn't even were. know each other. He was a, well, you were a SOS bandit, I think. You Pardon were, me? You were a Small bandit. order execution system. <laughs> yeah. I, knew, I knew a bunch of guys. Thank All you. right. Yeah. So so yeah. as far as Hood's concerned, yeah. 17% in Q1 of their total revenue was crypto. And of that, 34% was Doge. So they broadened out. They caught lightning in a bottle with Doge. Are they going to be able to replicate that going forward? And what are the other services that they can layer on? I think it's really important to remember that of those 20 million um, accounts, you know, we did the math there. The average account has like $4,000, right? So there's going to, they're not making money really on balances and they're going to have to really come up with some new services. It troubles me that you have a business that classifies themselves as a technology company when they continuously these fines. This is not over, right? They're still you being said looked it's at. like thirty-eight million dollars in what was the number? One hundred and sixty or it's something. Seventy-five, sixty-five plus another thirty. God. But here's the thing: seventy percent of their business comes from payment for order flow, and they did anything they could and said anything they could, obviously, to get the stock public and get out there. But why, you know, bringing it out at thirty-two billion, which is the low end of the range, I believe. Why is it thirty? Why is it twenty-six billion? Why the rush? What is Danny? the metric? What was the rush? Well, they each got to sell $50 million worth. That was a positive. But, but given all the news, and think about it, we're six months out from this GameStop thing where they were getting slammed every day in the press for shutting down trading and stuff like that. Remember, there was a billion-dollar bonus paid about going public. I had mentioned that before. Everyone's incented, right? They probably know things aren't going to get any better. You think the cloud's going to disappear? You got to market it at an all-time high. That's a positive for the overall, right, for Robinhood in general. If their average account size is five dollars or $6,000 or – Minus eight percent today. After that, whatever whatever the number is, this is not a Schwab. This is not you know this is not an E Trade. It's valued differently. What else can they sell to their clients on their technology platform, which is really all they are? They're not valued as a broker, obviously, except all the regulatory stuff that they should be doing should result in a lower multiple than they have because it is a regulated business that they're in. So 
It doesn't make any sense. Blind Faith was a great band, as I've discussed a number of times, but it's a really shitty way to live life. Now, this is interesting. This was in the Vlad Tenev interview earlier this week. In five, This is his quote, by the way. In five years, we want Robin Hood to be the most trusted and most culturally relevant app worldwide. It's pretty ambitious. I wrote back, I tweeted back, and I'd like to play shortstop for the Yankees. That's not happening either. But the vitriol that I got from people that, oh my, you know, here's somebody that's trying to help the little guy. Bullshit. Thank you, guy. Thank you, Dan. 70% of their business, let me say it again, comes from a business that can't get better, but could go away, and that's payment for order flow. And people fight back, oh, I'm supposed to pay commission on a trade. I like what Robin Hood does, and I will say it again and again. The orders are all grouped together. They're flagged together. The payment for order flow process is when stuff trades on the, in the darks, not on the exchange, on the lit exchanges, the way they measure price improvement isn't correct. I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole again with this stuff, but you ask why they went public? Because it's only going to get worse for them in the future. This was their window and they took it. And think about this, market's all-time highs. This thing should be jamming. It was obvious they price it too high, obviously. It jammed. Maybe there's a level that it should trade at. Maybe they'll fix all these regulatory issues that they have, but I have a problem with their business model in general that they have right now. And And by the way, this is the meme stock of all meme stocks, right? This is it. This is the queen bee coming out of the hive today going public. So I have a question for Dan. Nathan, Dan, when Coinbase, whatever the hell you, I know you know all the fancy lingo. I don't really give a shit. When they went public, that marked almost to the day the top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin went from 64000 to 28000 within whatever amount of time the Coinbase. So my question to you is, are we going to be having a similar conversation about the broader market two weeks from now, post-hood IPO. Well, that that's kind of what I was thinking, is that we're going to have the bulk of earnings out. There aren't going to be too many other surprises going forward. The Fed, I think, and we're going to talk a bit later about that, I mean, that really is going to kind of dictate, I think, the back half of the year returns, what they choose or choose not to do. It seems like the stock market is clearly less frothy than the crypto market was in April. I mean, let's just be fair on that. And it was much more prone to the sort of drawdowns that it had. So to me, I, I think... I just want to tell our listeners, it feels great right now. The S&P is at an all-time high. It's up 17%. The results that we saw generally are really good. Monetary policy is going to remain very accommodative. If things go better with this Delta variant and the vaccines, we start to pick up pace in places around the world that are, are far less vaccinated than we are, then it should be great. Remember September 2020. We felt great about everything other than the virus in generally, and the market went down in a straight line in September, and some of these mega cap names went down like 20% in, in a month. And remember September 17th, 2019. I just throw it out there. If you want to go to your Google machine and check it out. I know Danny loves this shit, as do I. That was the day the repo market sort of blew up, and that to me... That set the tone, that set the stage for what transpired in early 2020. Now, you're listening to this, you're saying you're an asshole guy, which is true. The, the, it was the COVID virus that knocked the market down. And I will say that was the match. The tinderbox was back in September of 2019. Over to you, Danny Moses. <laughs> I was going to say, there's some other stuff out there right now that we should talk about. Apparently, if you live in the United States, which the three of us do, you live within five miles or something of a Walmart. And you got some interesting take here, apparently. By the way, I like the Walmart. I like the fact that you can buy a big screen TV and a quart of ice cream. Same time. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, there was an announcement yesterday 
I don't think people are appreciating what Walmart has done with their technology in the last five years, how they're really on the heels of Amazon right now, and they're getting re-rated slowly but surely. Walmart reports an off-quarter to July fiscal, so I think August 17th, their report. It trades 30 times, roughly, Dan, around that level, and I think numbers are probably too low, but think about this. What did Amazon do for all these years? They built out all these distribution centers all over the country. Walmart already had that because they already had these superstores everywhere. They are quickly becoming, they are a huge e-commerce. I think they're second largest. I think Walmart's probably 50, 60%. Walmart's 15 to 20%. Just think about that for a second. A lot of people listening to this podcast probably don't shop at Walmart, not because they have anything against it, just not close. It's not within that five-mile radius, or maybe it is, or maybe it isn't, or they're buying stuff online with Amazon. On the line. But you would buy anything. Why would you care if you were buying a product, shampoo, soap from Walmart or Amazon if it was delivered within a day or two? I love my, listen, I love my Clairol Herbal Essence. It's a $400 billion company. Amazon's approaching $2 trillion. Obviously, Walmart doesn't have the media business that they have, but I'm telling you, they have a similar product to FBA, fulfilled by Amazon, which is growing, and I think it's underappreciated. I don't even have to look at the chart to know that Dan Nathan loves this thing. It is about to break out. And this, you, I've been doing this now for six months. I don't really like to go after and talk about doing charts. Right. On a, oh, the, the podcast. This, the, yeah, the podcast. I don't know. I mean, you, you know, say this thing. I don't know what you're thing, talking about. This thing. But I really believe like stocks like this to me are potential gems. And I don't, I think it's about to change hands, I'm just saying, from kind of a consumer staple, so to speak, to a technology company, and it's going to get re-rated. Ooh, I truly well, I've said that you know before, by the way, no, as well. I, I know you have. You know, it, it's, it's a really interesting point. You're, you're trying to highlight a fact that most every major business in America or all over the world, they're trying to figure that last mile problem, right? And you guys just made the case very well. There's a lot of Walmarts with lots of room, and Amazon has obviously done an amazing job from a logistical standpoint and the third-party stuff and everything like that. It's been great. I agree with you, Danny. I think that there's a gap to be filled from February in in that kind of mid 140s range and trading about 22 times, I know it's like mid to single digits EPS and sales growth expected. It looks pretty. I, I was going to say, up. Dan, that's a great point you brought up because they made a mistake with Jet. They, they bought Jet. That was their friend, first billion. iteration. Right. They're all oh, the, the last mile. That was the philosophy. Yeah. They took a step back and they've re, redone it. Now, let me just say this they have a million and a half workers in the United States, right? They pay over 400,000 of them 13 bucks an hour. They came out yesterday and they're offering college tuition and books now for any of their employees that want to do it. And it's big. It's University of Denver. It's University of Arizona. It's Johnson & Wales. And there's some real schools you can go. So, that, Dan, I'm not going to argue about inflation right now, but Target and Amazon pay 15 bucks an hour. Walmart's right. That's a huge benefit. They're, they need workers, and they're coming in. Venus and Mars into Rock Show into Jet by Paul McCartney. So and fantastic. So All right. good. Speaking so of, good. Speaking of Venus. Speaking of, so yeah. good. Speaking of Venus. Here we did go. Did you guys see this movie trailer that just dropped? It's called King Richard. And it's about Venus and Serena. And I'm going to tell oh, you this I right now. Wait. I'm going to tell you this right now. It is Will Smith's Oscar turn. Love it. That's going to happen. Wait a second. Will That's Smith is plays playing. He's playing their dad. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. It looks excellent. Do they um, age him with, what do they call that? Computer? CGI. CG, no, like CGI. like your boy De Niro in The in the Irishman. Yeah, they what doing a disaster that. that. What a disaster. What a disaster. Oh, when is this movie no, dropping? It's, it's dropping in November. Hey, real quickly, as we were talking about Walmart, I thought this was kind of interesting. I mean, this wouldn't be an on the tape if we weren't going to mention the Bitcoin. Hey, we all had a great conversation really quickly for any when? of you listeners here. Check it out. Guy 
Danny and myself had Michael Cerro. I was only there as like a. Well, you came in at the end. You had you had some tech issues. The CEO of MicroStrategy, and he talked China regulation. He talked Bitcoin and everything like that. But we talked about that bounce, and we've been discussing this move lower over the last, you know, even in the last couple months, just down from forty to thirty, or it got as low as twenty eight thousand. Twenty eight and change. And it was really interesting because we talk about we use like trader lingo all the time. Like we said, uh, that's not a great press down there at twenty nine thousand. That sort of thing. It's come along way. Well, it just took one rumor that Amazon might accept Bitcoin, right? And they came out subsequently and said they're not going to do it. But that sparked just this massive bonfire. For 40,000. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And we had this great conversation with Michael Saylor, and I led him down what I like to call the Primrose Path. Yeah, and we all know from last week, yeah. the, the interview with Mel. Remember the Primrose Path? Yeah, I so, do remember yeah, that. And that's that just why I mentioned the Primrose Path. I mean, it's, you know, you got to see, I know, what did I say earlier? You can't see us yeah. because this is, what are they call it again audio. audio yeah but dan the diamond hands or laser eyes he gives me is very it's very scary actually but what i'll say is this i asked michael i said i know you have conversations i said when is it when somebody of these big tech companies when are they going to put a portion of their cash balance into bitcoin he said it's not if it's when and he thinks it's a lot closer than people realize if apple were to come out and say we're going to put 10% of the $250 billion, whatever the hell it is, that we have our balance sheet into crypto, that goes from 40 to 60 in a laser, yeah. laser. Well, really interesting, though. And part of the whole Bitcoin story is about rates, right? And what did Apple just do this week? They launched a massive bond deal. So when you think about it, there is this opportunity to put some of their cash in what they could view as an asymmetric sort of play while they're just tapping the debt markets at like historically low interest rates. So I think Michael will be right about that. It, the, the volatility over the last few months, the downward volatility, I'm sure scared away a lot of CFOs making that pitch to CEOs and their boards. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see the first one who comes back. What do you call Sailor, by the way? You say something like you should put a bumper sticker. Yeah, for all of you. Christopher Cross? No. What? No, that, oh. that song, the Christopher Cross. No, I, I no, will no, tell no, no, please, no, Dan, I don't no, want to go no, no. For all of, For all of you Friday Night Light fans, remember uh-huh. Coach Taylor? Sure. He's like this beloved figure. So we're calling Michael Sailor. We're calling him Coach Sailor. Laser eyes, clear hearts. Can't lose. Oh, can't lose. Can't lose. Yeah. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, that was pretty yeah. good. That was right. By, right. by you. I actually saw that movie. Right. Right should, in we, headlights. should we? That, that was the. But the, before the we, show. you know, I, Danny just mentioned Christopher Cross. I will say oh, that no. Stephen Bishop, Stephen Bishop's On and On is one of the great yacht rock songs of all time. I could start singing for Down in Jamaica. They got lots no of No time women. for yacht rock. I'm just saying that's a great song. I have 700 songs on my Spotify playlist. I would say 150 of them are of that ilk. Ugh. All right. On that note, yeah. Well, Dan, we, can we get out of here? Well, sure. Where, now, before we get out of here, everything. See, see, I know that song. See that, Danny yeah. knows it. Okay. No, it's we a great it. Danny it and I. A great song. Yeah. We are. By the way, what do we say that we are kindred spirits, simpastori, or something? Should we wrap this thing up? We got Mark Dow coming up. All right, so let's bring a man with CME Group's micro-sized futures and options. You can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Mark Dow is a proprietary global macro trader and author of the blog Behavioral Macro, 
Mark started his career in Washington, D.C., where he worked as a policy economist at the United States Treasury and International Monetary Fund. That's the IMF, Danny Moses. Mark has nearly 30 years of experience as a policymaker, investor, and trader. He speaks five different languages. Mark, welcome to On the Tape. Mark, it's great to have you with us. What do they call that thing when you pin a tweet on Twitter, Dan? They call it pinning a tweet. Pin, is that what they call it? Yeah, literally pinning a tweet. Oh, okay. Because Mark has this pinned tweet that I'd like to read. Mark, then you can comment because this is the essence, I think, of what you think about. Here we go. He died doing what he loved most, shorting stocks, buying gold, and screaming about Fed conspiracies. It's like you wrote that about me, Mark. Welcome, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think the first time I wrote that was like 2013 or something. I, I just kept seeing that ever since the great financial crisis, people kept misinterpreting the Fed and expecting things to happen that never happened. And a lot of people are passionate about their monetary policy views. So it was just kind of a riff on that old uh, thing that you hear, you know, he died doing what he loved most. And you're right. Listen, I am that person without question. And I rage against the machine all the time. And I've said it and we've had this conversation, but we'll have it now. I've said that some of the greatest villains of the 21st century, and they're going to be a lot of them, are going to be central bankers. You know, I think they really set us up for really dramatic and draconian and really unfortunate things happening. You take the other side of that equation. Can you speak to why I'm wrong? Because clearly I am. I think a lot of people uh, just have a misconception about the mechanics. I mean, you guys know me. I, I spent my career before I got into investments doing economic policy at the Treasury Department and at the IMF. Basically, I was the specialist in countries that blew up and needed debt restructurings and financial workouts. So I parachuted into any number of central banks in distress, and I got to understand how, how they work and how, how they don't work. And the biggest misconception is that somehow this increase in the Fed's balance sheet is getting lent out or creating some kind of wealth that people want to invest with. And it's really just a, a reorganization of liabilities. Even the Fed, in my view, thinks it's more powerful than it is, although they've been learning, I think, over the past five years that maybe monetary policy is less powerful than they had thought. So we hear commonly people talking about money sloshing around the system, and there are three different kinds of liquidity. And the first kind of liquidity, the one that most people refer to, doesn't really, it's just money trapped in Fed funds and JP Morgan can use it to settle with Bank of America, but they can't lend that money out. So really all this, you know, it's happening is, guy, if I buy a bond from you, you've got a portfolio that's 20% T-bills, that's your safe money in your portfolio. And I buy those T-bills from you and I give you a, a deposit. Well, you're not going to take that cash out of your deposit and, and turn around and buy Tesla with it because that would fundamentally change your risk profile. Now, your risk profile may change for other reasons, and that, that happens. People get more risk inclined, and they take more risk, and they reduce their cash portion, and they put it into something else. But it doesn't happen as a result of the Fed buying your T-bills. In fact, they can't buy them from you. They would have to buy them from a bank, which in turn would have bought them from you. So notion that somehow it's pumping money, it's increasing wealth that people can, would tur turn around and spend, I think is wrong. The other thing is just the way inflation works. Most of us either grew up in the 80s or have a knowledge of markets in the 80s and, and the inflation that happened. And a lot of people who have that frame of reference have been overestimating inflation at every juncture over the past 10 years because that's their imprinting. That's what they have in the front of their minds. But what's 
really, really different and goes unmentioned almost is the radical change in the supply side of the equation. If you remember back then, we had price controls, we had gasoline controls, we had wage controls. We had a lot of rigidities. Unions played a much bigger role in the economy. The manufacturing sector also played a larger role where, where unions were prominent. So we had a lot of rigidities in the supply side. We didn't have this internet-based global supply chain management stuff that we have today. And this is exactly why the Fed has had such a hard time getting inflation to near its 2%. The supply side is, is just too flexible and there's too much competition. They can move things around too fast. And uh, that speed and flexibility is why we have problems generating inflation. Interestingly, when the pandemic hit in March last year, this was also the reason why the economy outperformed. Yes, we had fiscal stimulus, which was extremely powerful, but guys found workarounds. You went to the grocery store and every time you went, they had a new barrier up, some kind of new protection, and this was happening everywhere. We just moved fast and were really creative. That's key at this point in time in dampening the pockets of inflation that we've been seeing. And that's kind of the foot race that we're having with respect to transitory. So, Mark, I love your – we call it also guy a subtweet. That was a subtweet. His pin tweet was a subtweet. So it's different than a quote tweet, right? <laughs> yeah, we're still, we're still trying to teach him that. Sorry. The question, you just talked about that powerful liquidity and, and the response to the pandemic. We saw that in the financial crisis, and I guess the first time we saw it was in the post-9-11 recession. But here's the thing, and I think when coming to Guy, I, I see some of the things that Guy sees. Guy sees that every single time we have one of these um, massive recessions or so, the Fed does their thing, and then it just further widens income inequality. And I think that's one of your kind of main pillars of the case that you have. So I, I guess the question I have is that if the Fed balance sheet is going to continue to expand after every big crisis, right? And then we know that interest rates are never going to go up meaningfully ever again. What is the exit strategy for the Fed? Well, they don't really need an exit strategy in some sense. Now, first of all, a lot of those reserves have to be there because after the GFC, the regulatory requirements increased significantly, right? Banks were not only under-provisioned in terms of capital, but they were also under-provisioned in terms of, of liquidity. So now, they have to have you know, high-quality liquid assets, the HQLAs. They have to have a lot more. So the, we're never going back to that balance sheet because the regulatory environment has changed. But I take issue even with the notion that the inequality somehow is some function of the Fed. I think there is a little bit to that, but I think it's radically overplayed for the following reason. This time we had a big fiscal impulse. Last time we didn't have such a big fiscal impulse. That's really the liquidity. It's not so much the Fed. But on the inequality issue, which a lot of people hammer on, the primary problem you have is what's the counterfactual? Higher rates go to savers, right? And wealthy people save. It would also hurt homeowners, the most widely owned and most leveraged asset in the United States. People just say, okay, stocks have gone up, the Fed cut rates, and the Fed used QE, and therefore the Fed's responsible for this inequality. But the inequality we saw started in the early 80s, late, late 70s. So it wasn't of the Fed's creation. And this, I guess, income inequality from stocks going up, this perception, that happens every cycle. We had the same thing when the Fed funds rate was at five at the end of the dot-com bubble. Every economic cycle, asset prices go up and it disproportionately favors the wealthy. Now, it's a fair argument to say maybe our economy is too financialized. But that's not really a Fed thing. A lot of that is just leverage and innovation. Everyone now has any kind of mortgage that they want. We have all kinds of credit cards. That's a regulatory issue and not so much a Fed issue. So if you take into account the way cycles typically work and that assets tend to go up even when the policy rates are high, five, let's say five is high. It's not super high. It's functional, but it's on the high end. 
asset prices will still go up a lot every cycle when that happens. And when you take into account the role of housing in the inequality calculation, and you notice that the inequality started well before we could spell QE, it's just, it just becomes a harder case to make. I get the surface case. I just don't think it holds up when you dig into it. Let me ask you a question. Is your cat's name Bernanke? I'm going to guess that's what it is. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, it's not? Okay. All right. So I just have a couple things I wanted to highlight that you had mentioned. I mean, the largest asset that the Fed seems to care about is the stock market. We've seen it over and over again. If there's a reaction to announcing of tapering or something, the stock market, it's like, oh, no, no, we didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. So I think that is the prize possession of the Fed. And maybe they think about it as just a you know wealth creation vehicle, vehicle they use. But the comment that you made by what the Fed does doesn't put more money in the system. I don't know how you quantify moral hazard. And you mentioned leverage, right? People's willingness to take leverage because they think the Fed has their back. When the music stops here, I'm glad you have all these experiences in helping global central banks work out their problems because I think they're going to need you because I don't know how you quantify the moral hazard aspect. And I got to disagree a little bit that the money doesn't enter the system because it does. When you're printing money and you're, and you're buying $80 billion of treasuries and $40 billion of mortgages a month, right? That you are printing, you are creating money out of nowhere, buying these assets, artificially lowering the yields on these products, yes, to stimulate the economy, but behind that are people taking massive amounts of risk and levering up on that. The main point, though, is when the, the Fed is buying bonds or mortgages, it's not a creation of wealth. It's just cash in exchange for other federal liabilities. That's all it is. Now, it can be a long-end liability or a short-end liability and all kinds of things, but it's just a swap. Mark, where's that money coming from? Where, where's the money coming from to buy those bonds? You're, you're putting cash deposits into the system and you're, you're taking bonds out of the system. That's the swap. So it's one for one. That's it. So there's no wealth creation whatsoever. You just change. You, you swap two assets that have different liquidity profiles. But the Fed's now sitting with $7 trillion on their balance sheet. Close correct? to eight now, I think. Close to eight. Well, yeah, but it's, that's fine. But they, the nature of those liabilities, that's the policy portion of it, right? And I personally don't think it's particularly effective apart from the placebo. In the first instance, it's good to kind of calm the waters and make sure that the banks have enough reserves to settle all obligations with. But the nut of this is it's not any change in the wealth of the private sector. It's not a change of the wealth in, it's not a change in, in wealth of the public sector. They've just changed composition of liabilities. So Jerome Powell has been on 60 Minutes two more times than I've been on, which is fascinating. The first time he was on, the question was, well, where does this money come from, which is Danny's question. And he said, actually, we create it through computer programs now. I mean, they just basically create this out of thin air. It's a keystroke. The key point is it's not increasing any wealth. So if your wealth isn't increasing, why are you going to go out and buy Tesla stock with cash when you just sold your bonds? You're not, unless you have some other reason for increasing your risk appetite. So that's the big thing. There are a lot of other things I think. I don't think the Fed focuses on the stock market. I think oh, come on, nearly, Mark. Near, Mark. nearly as much as people believe. It matters more because we're in a more initially oriented society. But I mean, I've seen it time and time again where the stock market will go down. And the Fed will be speaking at one of those endless conferences that they're always speaking at. And someone will ask them, well, if the stock market goes down more, what will you do? And, you know, would you change your monetary stance? And then, then you know, they answer the hypothetical and people say, oh, you see, the Fed's going to cut. And then the market rallies. If the Fed is doing its job right, the stock market should be going up. Mark, you think that the stock market wouldn't go down if yields went to 5%? 
I think in the first instance, of course, they would. But I would reverse that question. Have we had higher valuations with with Fed funds at 5%? And the answer is yes. Okay, but in this particular case, there's so much leverage in the system. Everything is dependent on lower rates. You have high yield spread. Well, I agree that we, we have a much more financialized system right now. And if they were to jack the rates to five overnight, it would be a disaster. But that's a different issue. What, I, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is kind of crept in there and it's in the psyche. If you remember, the Fed hiked rates nine times from starting in December 2015, and they lowered next in July 2019. And over that period, what did the S&P do? It was up over 50%. Did you agree with the Fed buying corporate bonds last year? Did you agree with that? I think this is one of the things that people get wrong about the Fed. Uh, They care much more about orderly markets than they do about the level of the markets. And as I said, if they're doing their job, the stock market will go up over time because that means the cycle is working and we're growing and everything's good. But the corporate bonds, what they were really worried about, and this is one of the consequences of the regulation, I'm afraid, in the wake of the GFC, all the Dodd-Frank stuff, they killed a lot of market making, or or at least the capital that you allocate to market making is much more costly now from a banking perspective. So they allocate less. And the market making has gotten thinner when the debt markets have grown enormously. And this has nothing to do with the Fed. This is the private sector debt markets, right? As we know, if you watch Rick Reeder on TV or you listen to the CIO at PIMCO or any of these guys, they'll tell you that there is an insatiable demand for duration and that goes beyond central banks. There's a lot of price insensitive buying. And that's one of the reasons why it rates are so low. So I think the Fed cares about orderly markets and they were, because if the markets aren't orderly, then corporations can't roll over their debt. The income inequality question about if rates go up, well, you know what happened when rates go up, home prices will actually go down. So I think there's an offset there into the the working man that's not experiencing the stock market, but has to deal with these large asset prices. But then it's a bit of an, a wash because when people buy a house, they don't look at the price. They I understand the- it's monthly payments, but my, my point is that it can even out to be the same. But at the same time, you're giving savers who don't want to go out on the risk curve. They're being forced out there by the Fed because they're art- artificially depressing rates so low that are forced to go on the risk curve. What are some of the most important inputs that you're looking at right now? What are you expecting in the Fed in the next couple of months? Do you expect a taper here? And how should equity investors think about that with markets at all-time highs, S&P up 17.5%? I think the Fed is going to be showing a little bit of leg at a time. They're probably going to go first with mortgages and then treasuries, but they're going to do it incrementally so as not to freak us out because we had that big freak out the taper time from way back when it turned out to be nothing. We were able to raise rates with no real consequences. So they just want to go easy into it. And I think really the big thing is fiscal. Fiscal matters because that is injecting something into the system. It does make people wealthy. So fiscal roll off is something I'd worry more about than the Fed retreating from, from QE. And, and at some point that's, that's going to happen too. But for now, I really think it's still good. I mean, we're still growing. We're still recovering. We have a lot of slack still that has to be taken up. Yeah, there are little issues here and there, but these bottlenecks are going to get worked out. So the, I know people debate this notion of transitory, but for me, the definition is really simple. What are we afraid of? The market is afraid of inflation getting out of control to a point where the Fed is going to have to jam on the brakes and crash the car and tip us over into recession. So if that happens, then the Fed has made a policy error. I don't think they will make that policy error. I think it's going to go easier than that. And we have runway, right? We have runway. People, when they talk about debt, they look at the obligor, right? But it's often who owns that debt and how concentrated and leveraged their holdings are. And the banks and the center of the financial system is not levered, right? They can't be forced to puke out the risky investments that they have because they don't have nearly as many of them and they're much, much better capitalized. So when we start seeing aggressively levered, concentrated positions, not so much the debtors or the valuations, that's when I'll get worried about an end of cycle, but I don't think we're there. Hey, Guy, Mark just queued you up for a great song, Easy. 
Oh, the Commodores. Come on, man. It's a great I, I mean, it's, Sunday it's so morning. good. Maybe, yeah. Mark, you can come in and be part of this. We got to get, I mean, you got to get your boys in. Here oh, this, absolutely. I mean, it, yep. You got to come back, Mark. Absolutely. We enjoyed this conversation. Listen, that's, as we say, what makes markets. I, I appreciate, I respect your opinion. I just sort of take the other side of it. I, I understand what you're saying in the mechanics. I think the ancillary stuff, what it does to market participants is what I'm concerned about. But again, we'll have this conversation another time. So thanks, Mark Dow, for joining us on the tape. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.